Dave, just make sure you speak in. Oh. How's everybody doing today? My name is Steven Rosenberg and welcome to the Eco-Capitalist. We've got Dave Dixon and Chris Foster with Georgetown here in Texas. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell the world a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So I'm the city's manager of resource planning and integration. It's a long title for basically an economist. Most of my job during the day is buying and selling wholesale energy for an electric utility. So um, that's what I am. I'm, I'm a trader and I have a lot of long titles. And so, what's special about Georgetown? So what makes us different than other utilities here is everything we do is based upon econometric models. And those models led us to purchasing renewable energy for our wholesale supply for every customer of our utility. We have about 70,000 people that live in town, a lot of different businesses, city facilities, and every single one of them are now renewable powered. Excellent. And Dave, why don't you introduce to the couple people out there that might not know who you are? <laughs> sure. Name's Dave Dixon. I'm with Native. We're a net zero energy home builder or solar installer in, uh, in Austin. And we also work around the state. I'm also on the board of Solar Austin. We're always looking to promote the solar industry and solar policies in Austin and surrounding communities. Excellent. So tell me what the last couple of years has been like here in Georgetown and what the next years from here are going to look like. Yeah, so, so the last couple of years have been a lot of explosive growth in the area, just population-wise even. Um, in the last three years in a row, we were ranked number one, number two, and then number five, the fastest growing cities in the nation. So a lot of new people. Um, which gives the utility the advantage of being one of the few utilities that's also growing. We came out of some old power contracts and we're looking at all this new growth coming in and we realized we need to buy new power contracts. We size those to be larger than the current need knowing people are gonna fill them up really quick. And as we ran through those contracts and we bid against coal and nuclear and gas powered as well as solar and wind, we timed the market really well. I say we timed it. We were very fortunate in when we went to the market to go get energy and the renewable power prices were very cheap and cheaper than the fossil fuel bids and the nuclear bids, which allowed us to go grab those contracts, make them long term. And because we overbuilt them, then we now have excess wrecks to settle against all of our power usage. So our utility had a plan to get 30% renewables by 2030. But due to the timing of the market and the growth in the last couple of years and the way Texas is going, you know, we hit 100% officially this past April. So Which is huge. We're there, yeah. And how many other cities in, in the country are like that? So, so we know Burlington, Vermont is considered 100% renewable. Oh, okay. Um, and that, that is, they're famous for being, um, oh, I almost said the wrong politician's name, but it's, uh, but in Northeast politics, they went that way. There, there was a wood-fired power plants out there that supplies some of their energy so they don't consider themselves carbon neutral but definitely renewable mm -hmm. and then there's a couple of small towns now i believe in the iowa wind corridor and three or five thousand people that because they're small enough they can just take all wind power all the who time. is the first though i think burlington is officially the first oh, okay. yeah the first in the nation um when we did it we were considered the largest okay, probably, the probably still are yeah but but there are a couple of cities that aren't far behind. So I think Palo Alto's getting ready to go that way right. very soon. Um, I know San Francisco said they wanted to, for sure. So, so there, there are gonna be others coming quickly. 
Of course, yeah. I mean, isn't that the future anyway? Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. Is for a lot of reasons. I mean, if you can make that happen in Texas, especially, you know, conservative town like Georgetown or Texas in general, yes. that's a really big deal. I think a lot of people were surprised. It was about two years ago is when you got all this press. and Yes. Although the plan was in works many years before that. Right. So, yeah, it, it, was, um, it was very shocking around the world to have a city in the middle of the fracking boom in Texas <laughs> and say, no, we're just going to go all renewable power. 100% renewable. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it, we didn't do it for a political statement, right? We, right. It, we knew in 2008 our old contracts were going to end by 2016. We knew we had to transition to something new. We were in a very unique position as a utility where once those contracts ended, we actually lost the rights to every power plant that had steel in the ground already. So, you know, oh, wow. people compare us to Austin, and I remind them all the time, you know, Austin owns power plants that right. are paid off. And so when they run those, it's cheaper just to keep them running. I said, we didn't have that. So we bid everything brand new. Mm. And those bids came back very cheap for renewable power, very stable long-term rates. Council ate that up because we have both um, a demographic of residential customers that long-term stable budget rates are good for them. That's a big retirement community. And we also have industries here that have very long lead times when they bid out products. So for them, they don't have to have the cheapest electric rate, but they have to know exactly what it is to get the cheapest bids, right? So uh, a couple of our manufacturers have, have like two-year lead times on building cranes and different equipment. So it's very important for business community. And since those two interests lined up exactly, it matched the renewable portfolio, made it easy to bring it in economically. And it was only after all that work was done that we went back and said, are we gonna tell anybody that we have all renewable power and we don't have fossil fuels anymore? And we thought about that for a while. Really? Which is why the announcement wasn't made until two years ago. Yeah, really? so, so yeah, we knew it ahead of time. I did not know Yeah, that. And, and, we, and we were we were just thinking, you know, should we tell anybody, does it matter, are people gonna care? And so we went and told council and we asked them, council said, you know what, People probably won't care, but at the very minimum, our economic development team and stuff, we think that if, if they have that as a pitch, maybe we can help bring in some other businesses. And they wanted a higher commercial percentage in the city. And so they said, let's just say it and see what happens. And, and it just thing, exploded. Yeah, yeah. yeah nobody had any idea it was going to be like that. It's crazy, though. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I think that's really good. I think it stands for something much bigger that's kind of in the works. Um, what is your personal background a little bit? Oh, so personally, uh, I grew up in Georgetown. Okay. Um, so everybody knows born and raised. I'm, I'm yeah. a local kid. Uh, went to Georgetown High School, graduated there, obviously. Uh, I have my undergrad in economics and finance from Mary Hardin Baylor right up the road in Belton. My graduate is a master's in public administration from Texas State, which fortunately I was able to hit it around the same time as Larry Gonzalez at the state, and we did it all through Round Rock together. Um, so I had a great time doing that. I came to the city to actually work on their property and sales tax side, do general fund forecasting for them. I was the first analyst they'd ever hired. Okay. So, so this was kind of new for them to kind of step in. As they were growing as a city, they realized, you know, we need more um, sophisticated modeling of what's going on. So I was there to help them with that. And I was here about six months or so before the utility director in 2008 came down and said, you know what? We need somebody with that skill set that can take a look at these power plant proposals that are coming out of the LCRA group and whether or not we want to stay with those. We think they're good. And I told him, I said, I don't have any background in electric utility. I never looked at the power plant before. Right? And, and, and he said, well, 
you can't really afford to go hire a group that does that. <laughs> and you're a pretty smart person and you know numbers, it's all financial. He said, all you have to know is financial numbers. You don't have to know engineering about it. I said, okay. So uh, it turns out our GM, his background is engineering. Perfect. So yeah, yeah so, so I talked with him, talked with all the people involved in the power plants. Um, there were 43 customers for Rails here at the time. And you know, I, I was a kid, so I was naive about it. And I came up to him and I said, look, I think I'm the only one in the room, but I don't think any of those power plants make financial sense. And I walked through all the reasons why. And after we talked about it for a few days, he came back and said, you know what? We're going to tell the council that. That's where we're going to go. And we'll just be the ones that jump ship and say, it's not going to work the way that that big company says it's going to work. And council looked through our reasons, thought it was logical. They believed in us and they said, okay, we're going to turn it over to you guys. Go run it like a full-blown utility. And they did. They just took the reins off and said, you what? guys can have it. Yeah. And so, so, I, so I went from being a guy that had access to nothing to overnight. It was, this is your ship. You can make the bids every day. You can sell everything. Just make sure it works. And when you get to new contracts, make sure the power doesn't go out. Fantastic. What? That's... So, and I've been doing it for 10 years. And you <laughs> so, love it. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. 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 Any job where your boss says you have the freedom to do what you need to as long as you produce... Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to go do it. Um, and I work best in that environment. I've told them before, I said, I don't want to work well when people are, you know, micromanaging and stuff. I don't mm-hmm. respond well to authority. So, yep. uh, yeah, so, so around here, that's what happens is, is he'll give me a problem. He'll say, go fix it and come back when it's fixed. And all I'm going to do is give you a deadline. That's it. Okay. And then I go to it. So 10 years from now, paint me that picture. Where are you going to be at? There's a very good chance that 10 years from now, I will be right here getting ready to retire. So, um, I'm relatively young, but I only have another 10 years left before I hit retirement age with the city. So I have a strong financial incentive to stay here and mm-hmm. pay pension out. Um, but at that point I may do consulting. There's a lot of different electric facilities that have asked me about doing consulting, especially around renewables, how to integrate them, how to financially manage around them really. Uh, ERCOT is an open market in most areas, um, particularly on the wholesale side. And there's a whole slew of people that are professionals at ERCOT that did not have a succession plan underneath them. So when you go to a lot of the big planning meetings, you notice that there's a generational gap between mm-hmm. a lot of people that are getting ready to retire and then people that are in my age group. It's almost 20 years. And we see that in a lot of our years now. Just trying to hire engineers is difficult because there's just a big generation gap. Uh, so as, as that gap gets to retirement age and they move on, uh, there will be a lot of people that tend to well, they call me now anyways, but there will be a lot more that will call us and say, we just need help on projects. Can so, you imagine yourself moving outside of Georgetown? If the offer was good enough. I, I haven't had an offer come through yet that I said was good enough. I've had a couple that were close. but um, Like what if Elon Musk calls you? <laughs> uh, well, it's, yeah, if Elon calls me, he puts it in contract, and it depends on where he wants me to live. Then you know, yeah, I'd say okay. Let's Not see. Mars, but yeah, obviously else. could be. Yeah, it, well, yeah. well, no. I, I mean, when I looked at the offers in in the middle of uh, California in mm-hmm. in the Silicon Valley area, right. I told them you guys just don't pay enough for me to live there. Really? So yeah, yeah, it's, it's expensive. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it is very expensive. Yeah, and Houston was the same way. I told them, you're hmm. not paying me enough to move to Houston. There's a premium on that. Interesting. So, so yeah, so it really depends. Um, but I have said, if somebody like Elon, yeah, was to call me up and say. We like your visionary. We want you to do this work for us. We want you to help us. I would tell them, okay, I'll help you. I'm not cheap, but I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, if the money was right, I would. Or alternatively, I'm a big, and my family is very big about uh, serving the country, which is why I work the government now, and in public service. I was never able to go into military service because um, I was medically denied three times. But most of my family has, and so I always tell people, said, like, if I had a call from the executive branch, I would go. Right. There, there wouldn't be much of a decision about it. So, uh, personally, I don't think any of them are calling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm not actively applying for DOD jobs or anything, but if, but if somebody said, I want to point you to something to get it fixed, I'd go get it fixed. Excellent. So, Dave and I were kind of talking about this on the way up. Uh, with Elon and the new announcement about the battery pack out in Australia. Yes. Do you have an opinion about that? Does that tie into this at all? It's fantastic. So, yeah, batteries are very important for renewables on the grid long term. Okay. And um, I probably had this discussion for the first time a couple years ago when Germany sent a delegation down here to talk to us about how to integrate renewables. And I was explaining to them the weather patterns, the geography differences. But really what happens is, you know, in Germany, if it's, if it's raining in uh, Berlin, it's raining in Munich, right? So there's not enough weather variation for them. So they can only get to 17 to 20% renewable penetration before the movement of clouds and wind patterns caused issues of availability of energy on their grid. So they have frequency problems, voltage problems, those kind of things. In Texas, that hasn't been true because... As, as we predicted for ERCOT, and ERCOT's upping the capacity for it, the wind that's built along the coast has a different profile than what is in far west Texas, mm-hmm. which has an even different profile than what's in the panhandle. And as you mix them together, they actually tend to offset each other. So we've proven that it's far more reliable than people realize because we're geographically diverse. Um, and the same is true for the sun. It could be cloudy in Corpus, that have bright lights out in El Paso, and that energy can flow all the way over with very minimal losses. So um, we can get much higher renewable penetration. We probably can't get above 40 to 50% before we see some of the same issues that Germany has. But we have the advantage where storage is coming at a price point now that when we do get there, it'll make sense for us to drop substation level batteries and stuff around that Tesla, that's one of the things they specialize in. Um, it's a different structure than necessarily what goes in the house, but those large utility scale batteries, capable of absorbing energy, moving it around, handling the frequency variation. Um, I've seen companies like Lockheed Martin working on new molecular structures for long-term flow batteries to help solve that. And what you are finding now, in matter of fact, next to you is an entire book about battery technology and how it integrates the distribution system. That, that we ran the numbers for, you will find there's a price point at which it makes more sense to put the battery on the market than it does to try to find a very quick fire gas peaker and put it on the market. Mm-hmm. And what Tesla's doing by pushing that mega factory and these other big expansions is they're driving that price point down far enough that eventually people are going to say, you know what, it doesn't make sense to build coal because you have to run them all day long to make money. Now it doesn't make sense to build a gas peaker because the battery can respond in less than two minutes and the gas takes at least five, mm-hmm. and by the time the battery responds, the price isn't there for the gas. The gas loses money every time they flip the trigger. And that's what people are seeing in the market. So batteries are a very important feature for me. Do you agree with that? Because, you know, Dave is extremely knowledgeable on this stuff. He's really, really good. <laughs> oh, he's setting me up here for, <laughs> no, you for are. something here. I think you are. <laughs> Do you so, agree? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think absolutely there's, there's uh, going to be an absolute market for batteries. I don't know what that price point is off the top of my head, um, but certainly we're starting to see those prices get driven down. And like you said, Chris, it's going to be a situation where that will be the, the fast response part of the grid will be the, the batteries able to do ancillary services and provide the, a load and a, and a generation source. Absolutely. All those things together. I know that you know ERCOT spent the last you know few years trying to write some of those rules into place. I don't know if they're there yet, or if they're still. I mean, close to getting very, getting very that close. done, and that's going to enable people to start to once the rules are in place, then you can start to figure out how to play the game, right? So, um, super interesting. And I just man, I got lots of questions. Yeah, let me shoot, ask. Shoot away. So it's you know looking at the adoption of solar, you know, kind of the last 10, 15 years in Texas and the U.S. I mean, I think we started out, it's, it was very much driven by an environmental movement, and now it's much more of a financial investment, right? So we've kind of seen this somewhat of a, of a change as that price point has come way down. Um, and when you guys were looking at solar, you know, you were kind of on the front end of, you know, what year did you guys say you started? 2012, yes. well, 13? Well, we bid it out in 2014. 14, okay. And, and at that time, ERCOT had 148 megawatts of solar at the utility scale for the entire state. Okay. And Which is did, a blip on yeah, the, yeah, uh, compared to the generation that it's required. And, and, and our, bid, our bid was for 150. And so when we put it out there, the market went, what? <laughs> they just went nuts, you know? And, uh, and I said, but if you can do it if for financially good reasons, then, then we'll bring it in. Um, so ERCOT didn't have a great plan for solar at the time. They weren't sure how it was going to integrate. But that was the signal to them that said more of this stuff's going to come. And what's happened since then is prices have continued to crash at utility scale. Mm-hmm. Well, now ERCOT's got up to 20,000 megawatts of solar they're looking at they have to potentially plan for. Not all those plants have... Um, agreements like ours on the other side for financing them mm-hmm. but there's 20,000 that have worked on interconnection agreements and the ability to lock up land and go put the panels and stuff at and so if nothing in the market was to change at this mm-hmm. point forward those could, could those could come through in the next five to ten years um, and that that's just a big game changer for somebody like ERCOT which is why they're working on these other kind of rules for right. integrating you know updating the large program which is allows for demand response out of buildings um, how to integrate batteries. We actually have a company setting up a 10 megawatt battery at our south substation called Alevo, and their whole purpose is to R&D how the battery operates in a market like ERCOT. And when they came in, ERCOT put a 15 member panel team down to talk with us about putting them on the grid because they didn't even have rules yet on how that enters the financial modeling for ERCOT. And so batteries have actually a very unique advantage that because of that, they are considered both a load and a resource. Mm-hmm. But in the financial model, they're both considered at the load zone, which is the endpoint at ERCOT. So when you're moving energy in and out of ERCOT on a battery for a utility, you have zero congestion charges because you don't have to go from the resource through the hub to the load zone financially. It's all considered the same spot. So. Um, ERCOT is looking at all those things, what the implications are for other types of generation, uh, and they have realized the advantage of having those resources on the market, being able to call them instantaneously, so they're writing rules to make those economically viable. And that's where you get into, when they go to five-minute settlement intervals and they work on better responses for ancillary services and they increase the value in that market, you will see those things proliferate with the utilities. Um, I don't know when a battery is going to make sense for the house 
but for the utility, it's actually financially there now. You know, there's, there's places I can drop them on the grid today that have an instant return to my base. I thought, isn't the house model now getting close to feasible? Like with Tesla's new? Well, a lot of the feasibility of a battery at a home depends on what kind of rate structure you're dealing with right. okay. um, with utility companies. So if you've got a utility, it's got a where there, there's no advantage to to move a load around from night mm -hmm. to day, or for, there's no time of use rates. There's really no value to having a battery, assuming they're giving you you know electricity or giving you value back for the electricity you're backfeeding into the grid. So okay. it really depends on, or there may not be value in one jurisdiction. There might be a lot of value in another, right? So in places like Hawaii, California, New York, there's places where because of the rules and the way they're writing the rates, where there is a value proposition for batteries. Yeah, it, so. that's, this is the truth. So, so in our grid, we don't have time to use rates in Georgetown area, but we do net meter at the full retail rate. And at the end of the year, you produce more energy, we cut you a check for it. So there is a good incentive for people to use solar up here there's no incentive for them to put a battery in. Right, financially. Uh, how does that compare to Austin, for example? The same, it's the same sort same of st thing. story, right? Yeah. Okay. There's What's not really much of a... Um, so I wanted just to, just going back to, I'm just going back to when you guys were presenting this proposition to council, um, just kind of wondering what kind of pushback or acceptance there was among council members and among the general public. So I assume there were public hearings Related to this, this is this is a big deal. I mean, you guys were the first to do this, and you, you still. I mean, who else in Texas has 100% renewables currently, right? I mean, Nobody. so so we're sit, sitting here where you guys made a decision, economically based, and my first question is, yeah, how was that kind of initially received, and was there a lot of pushback or support? Or, it it was a lot of support. So we had um, beginning in 2008. We have both the council and we have a utility board that's under them, their advisory. And so both of them had public meetings about what kind of power do we want? Mm -hmm. And they didn't come out and specifically say we wanted um, renewables over everything else. What they said was, we're okay if you get to at least 30% renewables because we need them as a product for different businesses and stuff that want them. Mm -hmm. But what we really want you to do is find long-term power at a reasonable cost. Doesn't have to be the cheapest in the market, but we just want it to be relatively competitive. And find something that mitigates our exposure to regulatory risk. And so what was happening is the Casper rules were coming through, the Clean Power Plan was coming through. Right. Everybody was worried about well, what is the EPA doing? And so oddly enough, the, the conservative stereotype you get up here, you would think they wouldn't naturally be on board for renewables, but they were far more concerned about over-regulation than they were about what kind of power you have. Mm -hmm. And so the directives came out and said, look for stuff that, that makes us work in that environment. And when we brought back all the bids, I said, okay, these are all your different power types. These are advantages and disadvantages to them. We had bids from coal, gas, nuclear, uh, solar and wind and both of the big RFPs that we ran and we adjusted the bids um, when I looked at them particularly for the wind farms we had to do a lot of calculations but our electric consultant his name is Neil McAndrews he is a geologist in his background so him and I actually looked at the topology of every farm and site and we remeasured the radiation and the wind profiles and the laminar boundaries and we did our own calculations of what the production was verified numbers made sure the economics were there, and we picked the stuff that had to be the best economics. It turned out really is 
good economics on it. Um, and then we also calculated kind of what the potential risk was if there were carbon taxes that were brought down, what those could look like. We told council, you know, that's not in the final financial number, but if you want to know your exposure, that's what it is. So you can pick your risk profile. Uh, we even went so far as to look, there's a value in renewables and that they don't tie up water rights. So our region G in the Texas Water Board is pretty close to being out of water rights already. And as we grow and we hit 250,000 people, we're going to need more water rights. So if you have power that doesn't need it, there's more available, which means ultimately that should be cheaper. So there's a lot of reasons as a city on a holistic view to go that route. And we included those conversation points with council when we talked about the contracts. And then they go, and of course, then they go behind closed doors, look, read the details of the contracts and the prices because those are considered confidential. And they said, you know what? Those really are the cheapest deals and they make the best sense for us as a city, so we're gonna take those. And they were all on board. No, nobody objected to it. Nobody sat there and went, oh, those are renewable deals, we should just back away from them on principle, right? So, uh, yeah, it was a really fantastic conversation about it. After we made the announcement that said, hey, you know you're 100% renewable, that's the only time anybody in the community ever said, well, slow down there, right? And you can count them on one hand. It was people that came out and their primary fear was actually that if there was cloud cover and no wind, the city would go dark. And so we had some communication campaign around people to let them know that that's not how the ERCOT grid operates. You know, it's a balancing act of power every minute of the day. So the power just doesn't shut off just because the weather changes on it. And so once people got comfortable with that, all the opposition went away. It's been, and we've had thousands and thousands of people calling us and saying, you guys have done a great job. We're proud of you. We didn't know you were working on that. Um, so it's been very, very overwhelmingly supportive from the community and from really from around the world. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm curious. I think this is the question you probably would get from, from people that are saying, okay, well, we've got a solar contract. We've got a wind contract in the Panhandle. We've got a wind contract in West Texas. How, what happens if all three things shut down? Do you guys then have to buy on the market at that point? And, and I'm curious is, is how much you guys thought you'd have to buy on the market, how much you've actually had to buy on the market, and has it been, has that been all right for you guys as far yeah. as in the overall scheme of things? Yeah, no, no, it's worked out really well. So the, the farm in the Panhandle produces about 600,000 megawatt hours a year. The one in the West Texas is about 50,000 megawatt hours a year, and then the solar farm is going to be about 420,000. As a city last year, we only consumed about 610,000. This year, we're actually going to be on pace for 670,000 if this heat wave keeps up more. But we'll have enough power out of the units to, on an annual basis, clear us as 100% renewable. Um, and the reason I always tell people that is that the recs associated with the power that make it officially renewable on paper, they're only awarded to us every quarter, and then we have to go in and officially retire them. So at any given moment of the day, it's important for people to realize that you may not actually be getting a green electron coming through your, your right. phone, right? It could be uh, from anywhere on the grid because everybody dumps into the same pool at the same time. Um, but most of my day is actually spent developing plans to hedge around the financials for that. And, you know, I would say last year I probably spent half the time 
manipulating the grid and the other half of the time just taking straight power. But this year I've taken, you know, probably 80% straight power, 20% grid. When the solar farm comes online, because of the shapes of the farms, 98% of the time it'll be straight power and the rest of the time I'm actually going to be just putting stuff back on a grid. Um, and that's just because the, those two farms combined will, as a shape, are long for us every hour of every day for a while. And then it'll be true until they're like 2021, 2022, and then I'll do some more management. We probably won't run out of annual megawatt hours for renewable until 2030-ish. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that just depends on how well we manage the local distribution and use batteries and local solar projects um, to help shape that growth. But um, but financially speaking, yeah, we're in and out of the market every day. But that was expected. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> one thing that's you know, it's also it's fascinating about this is just the you know, it's funny. I, I, I it's interesting you say that you guys were not sure how to you know I won't say market it, but you know, talk about are we one hundred percent renewable? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? People care. I'm kind of curious. I think that you, I'm sure it was probably a surprise to you just how much attention. Oh, absolutely. That you guys got being the first city. Yeah, I, I was one of the naive people that said, ah, we'll say it and nobody will probably even notice. And, and how did that work out? When we look back on this 100 years from now, I always remember, I said, the funny thing is, is, is that will probably be the thing 100 years from now that people still remember about the city. They'll go, y'all jumped out there first. And, and that'll, that'll be kind of our legacy for it. Um, but if you try to add up the advertising value that has come from making the announcement, it's, it's immeasurable at this point. I had family members in New Zealand that heard about it before my mother did at the country club over here, right? And it exploded around the world. There's been hundreds of millions of views of this story across various media. Um, I've had reporters come through here everywhere from... Uh, Germany and France, like you would typically think, all the way to uh, Indonesia, Kakashan, Brazil, Argentina, um, China has sent people up here. We, we sent a delegation back here to China to go talk with them. It's been a it's been a lot of news from a lot of different areas. Um, so yeah, it, it, very amazing response. Uh, certainly not something I thought I would be involved in because I was just supposed to run numbers originally. But. Can you point to any you know businesses that maybe and there's a lot of businesses right now have sustainability mandates. They are looking to um, you know locate in places where they can get renewable energy very easily. I'm kind of curious if that's been if you've seen any any kind of effect from that. Oh yes, that, absolutely. So we have um, probably the, the earliest indication it was going to be an effect for us was we have one data center in town, and in order to build that data center, we extended utilities across another big open piece of land right next to it that's designed to handle huge power loads like that. So we have a site that can handle a 100 megawatt data center powered and ready to go. And our economic development team has been trying to pitch that to the state level. Um, usually the, the state gets involved in trying to land data centers from big companies like Google, and Facebook, and Amazon and stuff. And mm-hmm. so when those companies are out there trying to site, a state pitches to them, so we're on that list. And before we talked about renewable energy, Nobody ever talked to us. Nobody. <laughs> Since we made the announcement, every year, there's at least two or three of them that come through and say, we want to talk about your site. And we haven't sold it yet, um, but the first question out of their mouths is always, can you give us 100% renewable day one? We tell them, absolutely. That's, that's not a problem. 
And so that's what gets us into the conversation. Right. And we, um, uh, the closest we've gotten though is, is probably finishing in the top three, four data center. Facebook eventually put it up, up in like Ireland or so. The drawback of putting a data center in this part of the country is because of the heat outside, it's a huge power consumer. So mm. even when rates are low and you can get it renewable, it's just a lot of mm-hmm. energy. Um, so, uh, so people haven't bought off on it yet, but we never got that attention before. More locally, uh, we have like the Scott and White Hospital districts and Walmart in particular, they both as companies have renewable portfolio goals for the whole company. So when we went 100% renewable, they said, hey, look, since those guys are 100%, you can average our stores together and it increases the overall portfolio. Right. They advertise with that. We have a local brewery called uh, Wrench Brewery that decided they were going to get rid of all their gas burners and do all electric burners so that they could market their beer as being renewable power. And that has worked for them. Uh, last year, they actually expanded their growth by tenfold. And they are now going into distribution in a lot of different stores and stuff. A lot of people have them out on tap. Um, so yeah, that, that was a big growth for us. Um, and then we have, uh, of course, the data center claims that the new conference center that's run by Sheraton actually decided that when they heard about this, they designed their building to be more energy efficient and captured some of those other kind of green aspects. And then they had us officially retired the recs and stuff in their name. Uh, and so they're using that for advertisement. But the first people to ever advertise with it was the local university, Southwestern. Mm-hmm. And that was because in 2010, they had us pass through the wind contract directly to them before anybody else got it mm-hmm. to make them the sixth university in the nation to go 100% renewable power. And so they used that for attracting students. Um, and it was the student group at the time that came out and said we would like to have this and stabilize the rates for the the universities. So it's been it's definitely out there a marketing value for sure. Matter of fact, the uh, the city of Round Rock will market the northern part of Round Rock based upon that um, because the area where Bass Pro is and the outlet malls and the hospitals those are all our energy customers. <laughs> so, oh really? Yeah, you know we supply that area. That's cool. So yeah, it's uh, it yeah it's it's amazing how much it's taken off and. You know, I don't have anybody out there measuring what the value of that was, but uh, it certainly helps. Yeah. Well, it's becoming a real important, you know, um, consideration for people, businesses alike. So, yeah, I mean, it was a huge boon yeah. for Georgetown to do that. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Do you think that, I guess, other cities in the country, maybe we can focus on Texas first, like Austin, do you think they'll ever approach that or are the dynamics different and I'm asking from a standpoint because I genuinely don't know yeah so so the dynamics are a little different from each city uh, because a a lot of people are in different positions from assets they already own as well as their size kind Mm -hmm. of a little different it was easy for us to move there because we had no prior assets were small enough that building the renewables didn't move the market so we had that advantage and we were able to take advantage of the Kres lines that were already built in the area and we just came right across them. So a lot of advantages played in our favor. Austin is wants to go there. They really do. They and they're increasing their targets every year. What will end up happening for them is they will run some of their fossil fuel plants till the end of life probably. And they've they've taken bids on what would be like to sell those off. Um, but there are people down there who said, you know what, we don't want to really sell them because we'd rather just see them closed and not produce stuff anymore at all. So to do that, they got to run them to failure. Uh, and eventually they will. 
And what will happen is, is, is they'll fail, and instead of spending the money to replace them, they'll end up spending it on renewables. And they end up, they, they've upped the amount of renewable tech they've had significantly. Uh, Steve Adler's definitely helping them push that now. City of Denton was going that way. They, they had a plan this year to get them up to 70% renewable. Um, you remember their population was against the, the fracking expansion was up there. They had some of those big fights going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but they have come down and asked us, you know, what does it take to go from 70 to 100%? And is that financially viable? And we told them, you're a larger utility than we are. It takes a little bit of work. Um, mm -hmm. But if you wanted to get there, we could help you get there. Mm -hmm. You know, and so in, in what it really takes is for a lot of these places, is you just have to show them economically how to settle that energy. And they go, okay. Now we understand how we can get there. Let's integrate it. But if every utility in the state started mm -hmm. going that way, then we would run into these issues like Germany had, where once you get a certain uh, amount of it, you have voltage and problems, and so we'd have to start doing more batteries and accommodate. That's from the storage. Helps. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So, so 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 there there is there is room for cities to get there. There's definitely cities pushing for it. Um, it's a little different in each area. But every year, it becomes more viable. Absolutely. So the biggest thing, from my understanding, and I'm much less educated than both of you, but battery storage seems to be the number one topic of conversation whenever this stuff comes up about scaling. Yes. So hypothetically, if that is sort of being solved or can be solved over the next, we'll say, five years, with the rate that Elon is going with these batteries and, you know, is that going to really change the game? Hypothetically, let's just say it's very feasible and he comes out with a new invention tomorrow where it's, the battery can easily plug into any system and all that stuff. It, it's already changing the game. So, okay. so it, yeah, I, I used to joke with people that when I got in the electric industry that, you know, if Alexander Graham Bell woke up today, he would look at the phone and be just amazed. The differences. But if Thomas Edison woke up, he would look at the power plant and go, that's just like I had back in my day, you know, back to sleep, right? That's not going to be true in 10 or 20 years from now. Um, you think it'll take that long? It, depending on where you're at. It's going to go mm -hmm. faster in some areas. So uh, so people like us that are working on plans now on how to adapt for it will get there first. Right. The guy that you met earlier here that sits across from me, uh, Jimmy, he intentionally was building our distribution grid to be a 60% loading factor instead of 90% like where Austin's at. And the reason for that was to allow for energy to be um, distributed at homes and businesses and stuff and be able to flow freely back and forth across the grid. So that in our own integrated resource plan, um, what that will do for us in the five years is allow us to spread distributed solar first and then come through and measure where the losses and, and uh, voltage problems are and start strategically brought, uh, dropping in storage to help as well as placing things like interruptors instead of running duplicate circuits to areas because we know our crews can fix um, almost a thousand percent of line outages within an hour. So I don't need two lines, I just need an interruptor and a short-term battery. Those kind of things, all those price points came true when Elon began pushing battery prices down. Mm -hmm. That would not have been true five years ago. Right. But they are today. So we're already redesigning a grid to meet new technology coming. And eventually what will happen is, is you might have a line go down in one neighborhood and it'll blink at your house. And you'll go, gee, I wonder what happened to the power. And what you won't know is the line went down, but the neighborhood right next to you kicked you up. Mm. Right? That's the way we're designing the grid now. 
And so uh, that wouldn't be true today. You know, you would have to be duplicate circuits running all in parallel to do it. But we may be able to actually isolate homes individually and fix everything around them and bring them up and people will never know they're out. So what do you think will be a bigger solution? Is it the 100 megawatt big scale battery or is it going to be the individual home batteries that Tesla is coming out I, with or a combination? Yeah, for, for me, I think the, the future is in um, distributed solar combined with small batteries of the home with what I call the medium scale batteries of the subs, which they're not 100 megawatt usually, they could be, but, but they're typically 10 to 50 megawatt mm -hmm. sizes. That makes the most sense for utility in my size. Okay. However, there is, I have one wind farm proposal I was, I was helping evaluate that is up almost on the Arkansas border up there in Texas, kind of where that green triangle goes right mm -hmm. there. Um, and that wind farm actually paired a long-term flow battery with the wind farm itself to take out the variability of the wind and provide a block of energy the whole time. And that price point is only um, about half of a cent of a kilowatt hour away from being market competitive with everything else in EarthCot. So I've always thought the future is distributed, but it is possible with some of the technologies on batteries and where things are located at in the grid that you will find farms that are financially viable with very large batteries at the farm. Mm. Cool. You mentioned a little bit about distributed solar. I wonder if we could talk about that for Absolutely. a few minutes. Um, so you have to fill me in on some details, but I believe maybe last year you guys were working on kind of a a mapping exercise maybe of the rooftop yes. resources in, in Georgetown and you, you what now? I said I have it. It's all done. You have it. It's all done. Yeah. And, what do you, and why did you guys do that? What was the purpose? Yeah, so um, that was actually born out of uh, this idea that if we could build a building in Georgetown that could make its own energy at a price that is underneath our current rates, that that would be how we should design facilities going forward. So that was... So what we did was we started with, we had to build a new service building out on the west side of the city. Um, and we said, let's just design it to maximize potential of solar and we can always add battery later. And when we're working on a project of battery now. But when we put the solar up on that building, we did early test results and we found that it produces solar energy at less than six cents a kilowatt hour. So you think about that on a distributed scale and you go, okay, if we can do it, then other people building buildings in the city could do it. And since we're a monopoly and we sell people power back at a full retail rate, we know that if we want to be an energy company 100 years from now, we also need to be an energy services provider, not just you know the energy company, right? So since we proved it could be done, we took the aspects of that building and we compared it against the aspects of every building in our territory via LiDAR data that we've flown in 2015. And so the LiDAR produces a 3D map of everything in the city. And we identified every rooftop that could produce power at the exact same rate as that building. And so it actually gives me a solar radiation figure of every hour of every day for every square meter of the CCN. And so combining all that, now you have the layout of where you would build a virtual power plant across the city that is just as cheap as building a utility scale plant out in the West Texas. And, and is that is that tied into 
So it's interesting about, is that tied into the assumption of, are you also kind of overlaying the wholesale cost of power at, per hour as well? So west facing versus south facing because of the price differences. It is. Yep. So pretty yep. cool. So you basically created kind of a heat map of the best places to prioritize where you put solar in the entire city. That's right. Yeah, and, and so our, our intention behind that is we used to give people just a, a flat credit per KW for putting up solar at one point. Uh, we stopped doing that when we went 100% renewable and, and people would kind of quit requesting it anyway. And we were looking for a better plan and we wanted to strategically place assets where it made the best sense for the grid. So the public facing version of this map um, will just show those radiation kind of values and people can look and they can say, if, I, if I'm gonna put solar as a citizen, you know, does the city think it makes sense in this area? And they, and they can tell. Um, but the private version that goes in our control room uh, actually overlays the distribution grid in with that map so that you can tell the sizes of the distribution lines and feeders all the way down to the house so that we know if we want to incentivize a neighborhood to put up solar and we can get eight out of the 10 houses to do it before it changes our infrastructure we know when to stop and then we know okay you don't have to change infrastructure to support the rest so there is no more financial burden to it so it's it's both radiation value as well as capital value that goes, in, that goes into that modeling to make it as cheap as possible for everybody so is there you have all this great data now and, and what's the next step what are you guys going to do with all this data yes yeah, so, so the next thing that, that we're going to do is um, we went to the board and council, we showed them what this data is going to look like. Uh, and we have a five-year plan to build up cash reserves in the utility. And then once the cash reserves are where they want it to be, they will be able to take money from the reserves every year and put it towards putting out distributed solar in various locations that we target every year. And after we get a certain threshold of solar, we'll go back and start layering and storage where it makes sense. Um, and, and of course, we'll be opportunistic along the way, right? So we're, we're not gonna turn down the project at the South Sub. And we've also had another utility approach us and say they would like to put the battery at West Side now to start testing it early. Um, and they're willing to do that for us. And so I'm not gonna turn that down either. Right. But, um, but yeah, so, so it's, it's a long-term plan, um, but it's built about around using the capital dollars where they're most efficient every year. But it wouldn't be, it's a program that you wouldn't roll out for another fi for five years from now until it, you build up that fund or would it be rolling yeah, out Yeah, it's, it's not going to go out before we build up the fund. Um, and we have a five-year target on the fund, but a lot of that depends on, you know, how much money you generate usually during the summer months in ERCA because that's mm -hmm. where you make most of the money. And so if, if we have, you know, two incredibly hot summers and we build up the reserve in two years, then we'll roll it out. You know, if, if it is you know wet and rainy for five years in a row, yeah, then, then we just won't. Because um, our, our direction from council is leave those rates as stable as possible. Mm -hmm. So for us to roll out something that's capital intensive, we got to have the cash back behind it so that we can run the 50-50 cash to debt equity ratio so it doesn't move the rates at all. Right. 
Yeah, it's because if you guys could squeeze so, it in there before the federal tax credit starts to disappear. Uh, we're, we're not we're not allowed to take the tax credits anymore. You're not, but if you're getting, you could, you know, depending on how you operate with. Oh, it, so yeah. So I guess. So you guys better, better explain that part. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We intend to own the generation. Oh, okay. You guys will own it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. We, yeah. What we want to do is we want to identify the locations we want it to go, and we want to go to those property owners and lease their space, and then we'll own the generation. That way, we can build the power plant as it makes sense. And that way, the customers also don't have to put up their own finances for doing it, so you don't have to have credit checks on them and stuff like that. There should be money going from us to them. So is this similar, a little bit similar to what CPS Energy is doing with the very, rooftop lease program? Yeah, very similar to that. But again, in that program, they have a third party, which yes. has purchased solar. So there is still that federal tax credit that they're able to leverage. That's right. Could okay. you get a sponsor? Uh, potentially. Um, you know, our, our plan so far is for us to own it, but, you know, if we had somebody who really wanted to spend the money and help sponsor it and made a good deal, our council would evaluate that. We just... Okay. So it's just about money. the cash reserve. Yeah, yeah, nobody has stepped up and said, you know, we want to do that. But, but at this point, you're thinking the difference between the CPS Energy model and yours is that you guys do want to own those assets. Right. As opposed to what CPS Energy is, is doing. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that would be the difference in the model. But yeah, yeah, I've tried to talk to a couple of solar companies before about, you know, if, if I gave you a 10-year plan and told you I was going to give you a million bucks a year, would you lower the prices on them and just do it steadily? And nobody's bought off on it. Did you use yeah. Solar City? Uh, well, I have talked to them before. Really? So, yeah, they, they, they said they would run that up the flagpole at some point. But, uh, well, know, Elon, if you're listening, which I'm sure he is, he's such a fan of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've tried to get his attention a couple times, come down and visit and, and talk to us about different stuff. Because I told him, I said, you, you know, we actually have sites that if uh, if you wanted to set up a test, like Tesla neighborhood, uh -huh. um, if you're building a brand new building and you want to put the solar roof on it, it's pretty much just as cheap as putting a regular roof on it from the ground up. Right. So what we tried to tell him is, if you come down here and you want to take a neighborhood that's developing, put up 300 homes, put the battery in and put the solar roof in we will pay for the solar part of the roof because it's just like putting a solar panel in optimize it to the aspect that we have and then you can drop the battery in as part of the sales price and just and we'll put the charging ports in for the cars and you could sell it as a tesla neighborhood and brand it and see what people do um, and there's probably a niche in this austin area that, absolutely that, that would work for, be. yeah for 300 homes for but, sure but as far as i know that idea has not made it to his desk yet, so. <laughs> we'll try to get it to the desk. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. That's really cool. Yeah, it's too bad you couldn't get to drop that, drop that gigafactory over at that big data center uh, spot. That would have been fantastic. It was, it was actually really close. We were not, when he was talking about the what? gigafactory, so, so our data center site is not large enough for the, for the gigafactory mm -hmm. um, square footage, but um, the top two locations were where he eventually went and bought it. And this huge strip of land that's out by Hutto. Like we, that's right. That's where the final Yeah, he was almost going to go there. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe we should revisit that. Well, he might in the future. He, he's already talked about, you know, I'm, I'm getting enough demand for product that I want another five gigacenters. And so, yeah, he may end up spreading around those other sites. That's interesting. It might be a perfect time to have a, another conversation with them or reapproach it. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, my electric service territory is small enough. I don't think you could put one in my territory, but, <laughs> right? Because uh, that would just be cool to power it. But it would be nice just to have that as a center close by. Yeah, that's what it does. I think so.
Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. I'm great. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty good. This has been good. great, Chris. I, really I thought appreciate this was it. phenomenal. Very educational for me. Hopefully, educational for the audience. Uh, one thing I always try to do to bring the most value to the people that we interview is, if you could ask one question to the audience, uh, if you got millions of responses or feedback, what would that one question be? Wow. So, yeah, what I always want to know from the general public mm -hmm. is, you know. What is your opinion of our strategic direction? Because at the end of the day, the truth is, is if, if the public comes in and tells me I'm crazy and my ideas of the future are not going to work and we want you to do something different, I got to make a new plan. Right? Mm -hmm. That's good. And, uh, and I've been a lifelong public servant, and so I try to remind people when they walk through the door, I, I work for you, um, you know, not the other way around. Right. So, uh, so I do. Yeah, if, if anybody is listening and, and they want to give their opinion, absolutely drop that on us. Because we do, I do read through those and we do take them into consideration and um, present them to council and show all the facts and stuff around it. And typically I wouldn't do this, but I think it's pretty appropriate. If you had one question for Elon to get an answer from, what would that one question be? Yeah, so if I was going to ask Elon anything, I'd want to ask him, oh, I'd be really tempted to ask him about the neighborhood, but actually I'd ask him if he'd be willing to come down and hang out with us at the TRIA conference later this year. <laughs> what is that? Right uh, George, yeah, yeah it's, it's at the end of October this year. It's around October. Uh, it's October to November. Uh, I think this year it's going to be October 24th okay, to the 26th. Okay. And, you know, with a guy like that, you just want to go, hey, do you want to come down and play around with golf and have a drink or something? Um, that'd be my first thing. And then after that, at some point, if you wanted to talk, I would talk something more business related. But <laughs> I'm a pretty laid back guy. So. That's good, though. <laughs> So tell people how they can find out more about Georgetown and how they can uh, find out more about this conference you're talking about. Yeah, so if, if you want to know more about Georgetown, uh, you can obviously hit our website at georgetown.org. And it has as, probably as much information as you ever wanted to know there. You guys have Facebook or Instagram or anything? Do, yeah, yeah, Facebook will have um, various information that goes out. I can't think of anything we've ever put out on Instagram. We probably control it just to control it. Um, but I think Facebook and the website are the two okay. biggest means of communication that we do. If you're looking for information about our renewable plans and stuff specifically, we keep a lot of that actually confidential. Mm. And so there's not a whole lot of it outside of this office. Okay. <laughs> um, but we're more than welcome to have people call us and ask us about it. We have a whole staff that's, that's trained in CSRs to answer a lot of the basic questions and things. Um, and then, of course, people like y'all, uh, you should take them and talk to them about all the specifics. Um, for the conference, uh, if, if you look up, you know, uh, what's called Grid Next, you'll find it. Okay. Or you can just go to, to treia.org and uh, they'll have information on it. I know they, the last time I talked to them, they're currently working on exactly who's gonna speak at the conference and which topics are gonna have this next year, but they're, they did say they're gonna bring it back up to Georgetown, um, so that ought to be fun to just kinda of hang out. And if, if you're a solar developer, or you're an electric utility, or you wanna know about some of the weird technology going on in the grid, I know that's the kind of stuff they're wanting to talk about, all the way down to they try to encourage the students from Texas Tech and the other universities to showcase um, projects they've done that might change grid technology in the future. And, and that's really what it's about, is, is uh, it's a lot of us that just talk electric industry stuff. So 
Um, but it's a good group to hang out with in the Sheridan Center they're putting in. It's absolutely brand new, so it's great accommodations. October 23rd, 24th. Yeah, Excellent. Tria.org. Yeah. So you can find details and register. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to the Eco Capitalist. Here with Chris Foster and Dave Dixon. I'm Steven Rosenberg, and I hope everybody has a green day. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.